it's kind of only worth experience that you can tell the difference between something that's a tweak away of being worth many billions of dollars or something that, you know what, it's just not going to get there. There is nothing wrong as an entrepreneur with selling your company for $300 million or $500 million. Where you get yourself into trouble is if you finance your company like it's going to be worth $5 billion and then sell it for $200 million. Picking the right investor is actually, for many people, even a bigger deal than getting married because you really can't get divorced. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. I'm delighted to have Russ Fraden here with us today on Founder Real Talk, and also excited to have my good friend Crystal Huang here as guest host. Russ is the CEO of Dynamic Signal and a longtime friend of GGV. He's been a serial entrepreneur, tech exec, an angel investor for many years. Russ, before we jump into questions, can you provide a quick 30-second bio? Sure. I came out to Silicon Valley many years ago, back in 1996 or so, where my college roommate and I happened to accidentally be the first two employees at the first online ad network. That company got very, very large, and I stayed out here. And actually, I am now on my sixth startup in 22 straight years with that same co-founder. Thanks for that, Russ. It's great to have you here on Founder Real Talk. Six startups, Dynamic Signal being your sixth. So you, you had a lot of success at companies like Adify and mm-hmm. Flycast before that, mm-hmm. uh, before starting Dynamic Signal. What led you to start this company? I've always been excited about doing B2B enterprise software companies. I, I think it's just fun to go to work every day with a fantastic group of people trying to solve a large problem for big companies. And I'm lucky enough where I have two co-founders at Dynamic Signal. One I've worked with for basically 22 straight years, the other for 18 straight years. And so I like going to work with Steve and Jim trying to solve big problems. And now we have a couple of hundred employees at Dynamic Signal. And if horribly or magically Dynamic Signal disappeared tomorrow, I'd start a new company with Steve and Jim. So tell us a little bit about the company and the formation of the idea. How did it come about? Has it changed since you since you got going with it? It's changed quite a bit. So we always knew we wanted to sell enterprise software into large companies. That's what I've been doing for 21 of the 22 years I've been working. I spent a year trying to fix Wine.com many years ago. That was my one non-B2B company. And we started the company really more in the social media advocacy and influencer space. If you remember back when clout was a thing, uh, we started the company to provide infrastructure for brands to do things with social media marketers and social media influencers and uh, raise some money. And after a little bit, pretty early in our history, we realized that that was not a great idea. It wasn't as big a market as we thought it would be. We were winning the market. It just wasn't as big as we thought it could be. And we realized there was a great use for our application for companies working with their employees. So when we started doing that, the company really took off. And the majority of our history, I'd say if we're seven years old, we've been on this business for five, five and a half years. So how did you decide or what were the data points that gave you confidence that you needed to focus on the other thing that was unsurprisingly the business you now focus on? So this is the really nice thing about selling enterprise software to very large companies. You're generally calling on very smart, sophisticated individuals who understand their category far better than you understand their category. And so if you're a good entrepreneur with a great team, you can understand what large groups of people want and collate it. You can't just go around and build what one company wants for you. But the nice thing about selling to 
companies with more than 5,000 employees in the HR and communications and marketing side of things is you can really almost test your ideas over time. And it's one of the things that makes the challenges in an enterprise different than the challenges in consumer. One of the issues with consumer is you can't just figure out what the consumer wants. In enterprise, that's not really the case. Almost every great enterprise startup company started in the last 20 years. You look at it and you go, oh, that actually makes sense. These companies just did the best job of executing and building the team and building the product. And so we've done a great job of leading the market and following the market at the same time. So shifting gears a little bit, you know, you've obviously been a founder and leader for you know a long time. How have you changed as an entrepreneur? Right? How's your style and management capabilities and the way you deal with people evolved from first company to now? I mean, I, I can skip the obvious jokes because I've always been bald. And I've always been very casual. So that's not a new thing where I can make a hair joke. I've, I've really been bald since I was like 18. Uh, and I, I, I didn't used to be more formal. This is about as formal as I've ever been right now. So I guess my perspective is I've become more open to the life events. I, a long time ago, I used to have a policy. Uh, many startups ago, I had a policy that if you ever quit not only would I not try and talk you into staying, but you were dead to me. And it's not that I hated you, but I would really just, that was that. You had, you had abandoned ship on what I was trying to build and, you know, fuck you, basically. And as I've matured, I've realized that's a ridiculous policy. That was, a, that was just something where I was young and dumb about that. And actually, three of the best employees at Dynamic Signal are folks that at some point in the company's history, when we weren't doing quite as well, had given notice to go do, do something else. In fact, one of our best employees left the company for a month to go work somewhere else, and uh, we got him to come back. And they are three of our best employees today. So I, I'd say you know, that was probably something where I was probably a little childish. But It's not that it was a temper tantrum, but it was more that if you didn't want to be a part of what we were trying to build, I didn't really have any more time for you. And that, that was dumb. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about that. Obviously, then the, there were times at Dynamic Signal things weren't going as well. And you mentioned earlier that you know you, you started with a somewhat different vision than the business plan you're now executing against. If we go back to the decision point that you and your co-founders had to say, hey, what we thought we were going to build, let's change it, right? It sounds like you got a lot of feedback from folks in enterprises, large enterprises, but what was that decision process like? Is it tough to change your mind and 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 pivot as a business, or was it really kind of a, a fluid thing, or was it was it more of a binary thing? This is where I actually have to say you have a tremendous benefit when you have some experience as a uh, multi-time founder, being a part of things that were successful. So our company wasn't failing; we were actually doing well enough. We just realized, for instance, I could have gone to board meetings and painted a very nice picture. We could have raised another round if we had wanted to. It was more that my one of my co-founders and I came to the conclusion that basically we were winning a race, but the finish line of the race wasn't where we wanted to be, right? So there was really no point in winning that race. And so this is where it was helpful to have been a part of multiple things that were worth many billions of dollars. And so we were able to say, you know, this is working well enough, but it's not going to be huge. And the truth is, this is actually one of the hardest things to deal with as an entrepreneur. Let's use enterprise, though it's in consumer, it's the same thing. If you have an enterprise business and you go pitch 100 customers and none of them want to give you money, that's a pretty good sign that it's not working. And if you go pitch 100 customers and 90 want to give you money, that's a very good sign it is working. But what do you do if you pitch 100 customers and 78 of those meetings go fantastically well and you have a follow-up and you have a follow-up and you have a follow-up? It's really only with experience that you realize, you know what? They like the idea of what we're pitching, 
and they like the idea of buying it. Like, we're exciting. They want to keep meeting with us. But you know what? We're not really getting anywhere. And 10 years earlier, I wouldn't have realized that, and I would have put another two years into Dynamic Signal and then ultimately wound up selling it for scraps. And so that's really where you do have benefit of some experience. I imagine on the consumer side, right, if you launch an app and it goes viral immediately and you have 10 million downloads in the first week, it's probably going to work, at least to a certain extent. And if you launch an app and no one ever downloads it for the first year or two, that's a different kind of sign. The tricky thing is what do you do when you got 20,000 downloads in the first month and then you got 30,000 the next month, but the engagement's not quite where you want it to be. And that's where it's kind of only worth experience that you can tell the difference between something that's a tweak away of being worth many billions of dollars or something that, you know what, it's just not going to get there. So pardon the pun, but weak, weak signal. Sure, exactly. Uh, By the way, I've said this many, many times, and I don't say this to be critical. I've always thought, back when Pandora went public, I think I'm remembering this story correctly, back when Pandora went public. Careful, because I was an investor in Pandora. No, no, you, you can confirm this. Back when Pandora went public, the founder of Pandora wrote a blog post about how 500 VCs had turned him down, or 500 investors had turned him down. And I've always thought mostly entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley learn the wrong lesson from that. The truth is, if you pitch 500 investors and they turn you down, you should stop. In fact, you should have stopped at 80. I'm not saying you should stop at two, but you should stop at 80. And so notwithstanding Pandora's fantastic success, because that that is a true testament to an amazing, amazing amount of perseverance over many, many years. The truth is, you have the experience to learn, you know what? This isn't going to work. Because I would argue most entrepreneurs, if you pitch 500 people and they tell you no, they should stop. So you guys made the decision to, to pivot the business, sure. but you'd raised some money already. A lot, 20-something million dollars. We had 11 or $12 million in the bank. We had raised an A and a B from Trinity, from Venrock, from Time Warner Ventures, and a bunch of you know rich, famous guys. What was that conversation like? Did you get any blowback, and how did you deal with it? No, it was fine, actually, I have to say. I have plenty of horror stories to share from my career, but that wasn't one of them at all. I've found being open and transparent with a board is always the right move and actually more important when things aren't going well. So we didn't tell them immediately because we weren't sure how we felt immediately. It took us a month or two to figure out exactly what we wanted to do. By the way, at this point, we were one year in and we were doing $5 million in ARR a year, year and a half in. So objectively speaking, we were doing fine for a first year of a SaaS company. Sounds we just good. wanted to go to the board and say, you know that $5 million of ARR, we want to walk away from all of it. And we have this other thing we're going to do with the same core technology, but we're going to stop pursuing that $5 million of ARR. It's done. Those customers like us fine, so they had a long tail. They, they didn't churn out. We just were no longer interested in that business. So we went to our investors and... I would say our investors were very supportive. It wasn't the best news they've ever gotten. Uh, they weren't jumping up and down to give us $20 million more million, but we went to them and said, there's $11 million in the bank, there's 60 people in the company, we need to make a number of changes, and here's where we think the company will be in 18 months, and this is how we're going to get there with that cash. It took us about 27 months to get what we wanted to get. I remember in the beginning of 2014, we started the year with 60 employees. We ended the year with 60 employees, but we turned over 40 employees during that year because as we had changed the business, it's not that we did layoffs, we just had the wrong people. Those people hadn't done anything wrong. I had hired great people for a business and decided to go in a different direction. And so those people left and we brought in new people. And then we went out and raised another round of financing and it actually all worked out fine. So as much as it sounds, there are plenty of horror stories, but what I basically found with VCs is 
Any smart and sophisticated VC knows that weird things will happen in a company. And as an entrepreneur, the only way you can really get yourself sideways is if you're lying, which is relatively unusual, or if you're scared and have no plan. So, you know, I've been on 15 different boards, uh, not counting my own companies over the last 20 years. And whenever I've seen board meetings go poorly, not again, ignoring fraud or lying, that, that's a pretty edge case. When I've seen them go poorly, it's generally because an entrepreneur comes into a meeting scared and leaves a giant void, which will then obviously be filled by the giant personalities in the room. We walked in and said, hey, Venrock and Trinity, and we have an outside director named Karen who's fantastic. And at the time, we had another outside director helping us as well who uh, this is a long story, but had a conflict and isn't on our board anymore, but is a fantastic guy. Uh, we went in and said, here's what we're seeing. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do with the money. Here's how we think it's all going to work, and here's why. And they said, okay. I mean, it's a longer meeting than that, but everyone understood. So you handled the investor conversation pretty well, right? You didn't freak anybody out. What about employees, right? People in the Valley are very attentive to momentum and wanting to be at the right place for their careers and if you don't grow the team and you turn over a lot of people, I'm sure there was there was some question and doubt, right? So how did you give confidence to the employees as to the, the new direction? We were just very transparent. The truth about it is, again, this is the nice thing when it's an enterprise company is we basically said, look, here's what we're seeing in the market. You folks are all on meeting seven with Clorox. I, I, I'm using that as purely an example. And let me tell you, when it's working well, it really takes three meetings. So on the one hand, they like us enough, in my fictitious example, Clorox, that they keep meeting with us and they're really interested. But let's be honest, it's not supposed to take this long. And so we were just very transparent with people and we said, we have plenty of money and here's where we're going with it. And everyone stayed around. I would say, if I think about those 25 employees that I wanted to keep, Back in 2012, I would bet 23 of them still work at the company today. I, I'm not 100% sure that all of them do. And the one or two that left, left for things having nothing to do with the company. One of them followed his girlfriend to London before we had an international office, you know, th- things like that. So going back to this, the financing sure. part of the, the equation, we were talking a little about this before. You've raised a bunch of money mm-hmm. in different companies. Sure. You've had a bunch of experiences on boards as well. It sounds like you've been pretty careful about how you've raised money at Dynamic Signal. Maybe walk us through kind of how you've thought about the fundraising process and what you're trying to optimize for in each round. Sure. So I would say we've done something a little different than what people mostly do in the market today. So let's ignore the first 18 months when we had changed the business. After that, the business wound up doing fantastically well and continues to do fantastically well. One of the things I would say is when we went out to raise our Series C, we're at the point where the company had invented a new category. We had a who's who of logos. I mean, our, our, the customers who work with us has always been one of the most amazing things about Dynamic Signal. Their references, they're engaged, they're just fantastic companies. We're you know killing our competitors, we have great employees, all of these wonderful things. And the truth is, again, as an entrepreneur, I sat there and thought, we have all of these great microeconomics that probably would enable us to raise 50 or $60 million dollars. But in our heart of hearts, we know we're on to something, but we're not sure it's going to be a multi-billion dollar independent company. Let's go raise $10 million. And that was challenging because of the obvious mechanics of what makes that challenging in the Valley. But our basic perspective is, the way I like to think about it is, there is nothing wrong as an entrepreneur with selling your company for $300 million or $500 million. Where you get yourself into trouble is, if you finance your company like it's going to be worth $5 billion, 
and then sell it for $200 million. There's a lot of employee issues. You know, this has been covered many, many times. There's cap table issues and preference issues and also just investor expectation issues, right? Ignore the pure economics of how much money I put in my pocket versus how much GGV puts in its pocket, if GGV were an investor. Like, ignore that. There's a human cost. It's, it's very challenging. And so my perspective was, many years ago, let's avoid that. We're not sure it's going to be a giant company. Let's go raise $10 million. And we did that. That was a little hard to pull off, but we did that. And then I'd say two years ago, when we were sure we were the leading company in something that would be giant and independent, then we went and raised $50 million. So as we sit here today, having raised $90 million, we raised almost all of it after we were sure that we were going to be the winner in a very large category. And I would say... You know, right or wrong, people have made different decisions. You'll interview other people for this podcast series that have done something different, and there are pros and cons to both. What I would say is we were always very careful and transparent with the team of, hey, we could go raise $50 million, but we're not 100% sure that this is going to be giant yet. That was, you know, years ago. So we're going to raise 10, which means we're going to hire less people and we're going to have less free perks. But the good news is you're all working very hard for your equity and it's going to be worth more money. And uh, that has done great for us. I think that's probably, weirdly, after having been out here for many, many years, it probably weirdly makes me a contrarian. But I think raising a little bit more money than you need is kind of the essence of why venture capital exists. And it's just gotten a little different the last few years. And there'll be some giant successes and there'll be some giant failures because of it. So continuing down that thread, you know, you've mentioned elsewhere that you've raised probably 25 rounds of financing your career, maybe more. Some, something like that. And so obviously, you know, you've picked up some lessons along the way that have led to, you know, your attitude about fundraising today, right? So I just tell, tell us about maybe some of the, the tough financing experiences and the tough investor conversations that you've had that, you know, have kind of informed your opinion today. So I will say, I think of it less, I'll answer your question directly in a second. I would say the biggest thing that people say, but until you've done a couple of startups or unless you're just unusually smart for your age, you don't really understand is... Picking the right investor is actually, for many people, even a bigger deal than getting married because you really can't get divorced, right? Marriage, luckily, I've been married for a very long time. My wife is fantastic and I have no plans of getting divorced. But people do, right? It is a thing that one can do. You really can't. If I'm the founder and you're the board member, I really can't get rid of you and you really can't get rid of me. And so I lived through this where, you know, I was many years ago, I was one of the first, if not the first, executives at Comscore before Comscore was anything, before it had a dollar of revenue. And Fred Wilson and Bruce Golden, who had done the Series A for that company, they were on the board for at least 10 years. So sure, today Comscore is a multi-billion dollar public company and a success by almost any measure. But if the founder of Comscore and Fred and Bruce didn't get along, that's a giant giant problem. And so I have many times in my career, you know, Adify Series B, I remember particularly, I took a term sheet that was 20% lower valuation than my other term sheet because I really wanted to work with Tim Connors, who was at USVP at the time. I thought he'd be a fantastic board member. And sure, when I sold the company, relatively speaking, I would have made more money given the dilution. But I think you really have to optimize for quality of life in terms of picking the right partner to work with. So obviously, look, if you go out to raise money and you get one term sheet, you should probably take it because your number one goal as CEO is not to run out of money. But once you're not going to run out of money, there really is a giant argument to making sure you're picking the right partner, 
the right firm, and also raising the right amount of money. And like I said, people give that lip service, but that's been my number one piece of advice is actually do that. Don't just nod your head when you're listening to this in your ear pods, actually do it. More often than not, that will be the right move. There are certain companies that can probably say, you know what, screw it, we're doing so fantastically well and we're so big. You know, you could you could argue for the couple hundred million dollar financings that are really just IPOs. Maybe your board member matters less. It matters a lot in the early days. And whether you want to partner with Glenn, you know, if Glenn invested and led the Series A of my next company, the data would say we'd be working together for eight to 10 years. That's a long time. That for many entrepreneurs, it's longer than they've been an adult. And so that's a long, long relationship. You'd still be bald, and I would definitely be bald by exactly. the end of it. Exactly, you will definitely be bald at the end. So this is a really interesting philosophy that you've got. And I must say, based on you know the, the, the countless number of entrepreneurs that Crystal and I meet with, is pretty unique. What about culture? You compete for people with lots of other folks in the Valley and elsewhere. And those founders are talking perhaps more aggressively, maybe raising more money and using that as a marker to get people excited. Have you found difficulty in retaining and attracting great people? And if if you haven't, if you've been successful, how have you managed to do that? It sounds like transparency is a big part of your strategy, but tell us a little bit more about how you've built your culture at, at Dynamic Signal. So number one, I'm delightful and people <laughs> like working with me. Uh, obviously, I'm easy to work with. I have two co-founders, like I said, I've worked with for longer than many founders have been adults. And so we must be easy to get along with. But on top of that, one of the nice things about selling software to very large enterprise companies is there's a set of people in the world who are very attracted about the idea of solving meaningful problems for meaningful companies. And when you do that and you treat people well and you pay them fairly and they get to work with other very high quality individuals, that's attractive. And that has amazing recruiting value, amazing retention value. And so one of the things I would say, I guess this is another area where I've, I've been different than a lot of other entrepreneurs. I was never a big fan of the lean startup idea. I know that's now become out of favor. I, I never bought that. I never bought the MVP model. And the reason is, you'll see this all the time. Even sometimes you miss it when you're a VC. But one of the reasons you'll see employee churn in SaaS companies is because the product's shit. And no one's actually using the product. So there's a set of SaaS companies out there in the world who are very good at building sales and marketing organizations, but they built a product that either doesn't work or doesn't provide value for customers. And so what happens is over time, those customers churn. And you may financially be building a company that looks good from the outside, but employees know that. And so the nice thing about coming to work at Dynamic Signal is you're going to be treated with respect. You're going to get a ton of responsibility. You're going to go work with other smart people. But you're also building a product that actually matters. Our customers actually use it. Our customers renew. Our customers grow. And so it's amazing how often you've had these horrible effects of things like MVP and lean startup. And lean, the opposite of lean startup is not spend all the money in the world, as I've just said. But it's amazing to me how often people launch shitty products and rely on great sales and marketing to sell it to the enterprise. Because the problem with that is, first of all, ultimately it will catch up with you with churn, but maybe you can sell your way through that. Maybe you can raise enough money where, yeah, you have 25% logo churn on a year-over-year -year basis, but it's fine because you're pouring more and more money. That's fine. What that does to the culture of a company is terrible because your employees understand over time, hey, we're really very good at selling this piece of shit. And that doesn't feel good. And so I would say the number one thing that drives culture at Dynamic Signal is our product works and solves a real problem. Number one. 
Number two, we're selling it to large companies. Number three, we don't lie about what the product does. And so when you don't do those things, transparency with your employees is great. Look, we don't post everyone's salary on the wall. There's things we could do to be more transparent that I choose not to do. But one of the biggest things we do is we're very transparent about wins. We're transparent about why we think we're better than our competitors. We're transparent when we have big issues with customers. We tell people why. And we treat it as a big deal. And so by treating the fact that I just told you that getting business with large company X is very important to us. When we have issues with that customer, what can we do internally? What did we do wrong? How can we do a better job there? Look, you're always going to lose some customers in the fullness of time. But being transparent with people about the fact that what they're doing matters and why it matters, I think is great. We have, I want to say we have 200 employees and we had one employee leave in the last 18 months. Wow. Well, there are people we let go, but we had one employee voluntarily leave in the last 18 months. So- you know, hopefully we'll be able to keep that culture as we get to 500, as we get to 1,000 employees. But that's been our biggest thing from day one, much like with the financing is let's make sure that this product is valuable. Now we're good at convincing people it's valuable with sales and marketing. It actually is. So another aspect of culture that you've talked about elsewhere is work and family balance. And that's something that a lot of newer entrepreneurs are a little afraid to talk about because they want the market to think they're cranking 24-7, they're working you know, all the time. So how are you able to, you know, find that balance and also, you know, sort of message that it's okay to your employees without compromising on, you know, focus, ambition, drive, speed? Look, the most important thing for us as a company is the customers. And so my perspective, when we talk about culture, like I'm older than I was, well, I'm older than I've ever been, I guess, but I'm older than I was when I worked at my first startup and I... Actually, thanks to broadband, my first startup, I used to spend 110 hours a week in the office. But part of that was the fact that there was no broadband. So not only was I 19, 20, 21 and had nothing to do and had no other friends in California other than the 11, well, the company got very big, but other than the 10 or 11 coworkers I had, uh, there was also you couldn't work from home. So broadband and then mobile phones have really changed your ability to work 24-7. I don't know if it's made it better or worse, but it's, it's just changed the way work works. But look, I have three kids. I made the decision. I had them on purpose, as I've said many times. Like I made the, my wife and I made the decision to have three children. And so part of that obviously will take some of my attention away from work. And so I guess I have the same perspective with my employees that I have with my children, which is I think I can be a fantastic father who also works very hard because the only two things I do are work and spend time with my kids. And I think I can be a fantastic CEO who has no issue with culture because the only two things I do are spend time with Dynamic Signal and time with my kids. And so I think it would be weirder if you had other sets of priorities that might be harder to deal with. I'm not saying it's good or bad. That, that might be harder for other folks to deal with. But look, it's the, the nature of life, right? To me, when if you're one of our employees who's joining us at 21 or 22 and you're getting started with your career, you should work your ass off, not just for Dynamic Signal, but for yourself. And as you age and as you mature, if you wind up having a family, of course, some of your time will be taken for other things. And I'm unapologetic about that. But I was also in Australia last week because I needed to be. And so I think you have to be, you know, a serious leader if you're going to run the company. And if you want to mostly, if you want to mostly check out, you probably shouldn't be the CEO anymore. But I don't think there's any, I actually don't view it as something I have to make an excuse for. Mm -hmm. I think I think people overthink this. I think there's a weird glorification of how many hours people work. The truth is some people work more and some people work less. And could Dynamic Signal be a bigger company if I worked a little more and 
didn't happen to have kids or was a relatively worse father? Sure. I, I mean, it, that is possible. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe there is a bizarro Russ on a bizarro planet living that life. I, I don't know. It's entirely possible. We've got him on the show next week. Yeah, it's probably better. I, I, I have no idea. As you know, there are some amazing entrepreneurs who have many, 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 many more children than I have. And so what? They, they can be great fathers and great mothers and they can be great CEOs. Uh, so I don't, I don't believe it is purely about the number of hours in the office. The other nice thing you have in the enterprise world, by the way, is it really doesn't matter if you're in the office at one in the morning. There's no one to call, right? If you are a salesperson, I, mean, I guess you could call someone in Australia, but if you are a U.S. seller for us, we want you to work very, very hard and very, very effectively, but there's really not that much to do at midnight. So a uh, question just following on that lead around your enterprise focus, your you know, big companies are sure. your customers, right? Yep, Does that thousand employees plus. Right. And you said one important part of your culture is customer comes first. Yep. So selling a large enterprise, again, a little bit anomalous to a lot of the startups sure. uh, in Silicon Valley these days. Anything that you've counseled to others or that you'd counsel to listeners about selling to a large enterprise and things you need to do to be successful there? So I'd say two things. Number one the thing that scares me is not when entrepreneurs are going to call on small businesses or when entrepreneurs are going to call on enterprise. What I'm always scared of, and yes, you can point to three examples where you can point to three counterpoints. I'm always worried about the bank shot. I'm always worried about the entrepreneurs who say, well, we're going to start selling to all our friends at that were YC companies, and we're going to have this SMB product, and then we're going to build an enterprise company on the back of it. Very tough now, to do. Now, yes, yeah. SAP, Salesforce, uh, New Relic, right? Yes, there are examples of that. That is very unusual. My perspective is on day one, you should start building the company you want to build and it may change over time and then you'll change the company you want to build. But from day one, we knew we were building a serious product for serious companies. And that's one of the reasons we've been successful. And if we had gone with an SMB offering, everything would be different. Oh, we would have more, focus more on marketing and less on sales in the early days. We would have focused on a different product choices in the product. And so, sure, certain very, very large companies can sell to everyone, right? This doesn't, this advice doesn't, well, Google doesn't need my advice, but this advice doesn't apply to Google. But I think for the first five years of your company, if you're going to settle large enterprises, really everything about your company is different than if you're going to settle small enterprises. And this isn't a value judgment on whether Okta is a more or less valuable company than Workday. I, my my point isn't that it's better to try and build Okta or Workday to name two giant successful SaaS companies. My point is that there are different decisions you make when you are building those companies, and you have to finance your company and hire employees as appropriate. So you can find plenty examples of you know HubSpot is a fantastically successful company, as is Eloqua, the company Oracle bought that was a competitor. Right, very different sets of the market. What's very hard to do is be HubSpot and Eloqua at the same time. So it sounds like it boils down to focus. Sure. And if you if you make the commitment to large enterprise, it can be done. Yeah, you just got to really build from day one. In fact, you, you know this data, but I think if you look at the last 20 years, there have only been three SaaS companies founded that are worth more than $10 billion in the last 20 years. And all of them sell to very large enterprises. And even the SMB guys, almost all of them around the time they're getting ready to go public say, oh, Let's we got to figure out enterprise. enterprise. Like, yeah. Look, it's it's not rocket science, right? We don't have a consumer product where we give away a free service and then monetize it through advertising or through a very low percent of people doing e-commerce. We sell software to people. People that have more money are more valuable to us than people that have less money. That is how it works. So, uh, Russ, this has been awesome. We're going to end with a hot seat set of questions. Sure. So we'll ask you a few questions. Tell us the first thing that comes in your mind. And 
Let's spend no more than a minute or so on each one. Great. First question for you. You spent a lot of time on Twitter. Is there some business value there or why do you do that? So it actually started for a lot of business value. It started, again, in the early days, a lot of our company was focused around social media. Then I will say a couple of things. There's a set of usage in Twitter if you're in the tech and VC world where that actually is useful and does matter, number one. And number two, I really do like reading about and discussing politics. And so Twitter at this point has become almost completely either politics or Bitcoin. I don't care much about Bitcoin, but I do care quite a bit about politics. And so it's probably my number one time waster in the world, actually. Hat tip for all listeners. Russ is a great follow on Twitter. Oh, the best, the best. So what's the worst moment you've ever had in a board meeting and why? For a company I've run, I can't think of a worst moment I've ever had in a board meeting for any company that I've I've run, I, I'm not going to talk too much about it because they're a public company, but for a number of years, I was a director on Comscore's board, and Comscore has quite publicly had quite a bit of issues, and there were some management changes, and the stock was delisted, and there was, there was quite a bit of public information about that. That was universally, that was completely unpleasant. The 100 board meetings we had over an 18-month period were not pleasant at all. Okay, last one for you, Russ. You're obviously a really bright guy and have great thoughts on lots of topics. What do you read? What's high on your list of things to read to get current and um, go deep on topics in technology and business? And then maybe a book you've read recently that you so, recommend. So actually, we, we decided literally yesterday, this is, this is fortuitous timing. We decided yesterday, I started Russ's book club at Dynamic Signal. There's a Glenn's book club too. Oh, really? Oh, that's cool. Maybe we can merge. I told people they were welcome to start a competing book club. This isn't I'm the CEO, everyone has to do mine. But I started my own book club as a way to give myself deadlines to read some of these books that I've had on my list for a long time. The most interesting book I've read lately, I'm 80% done with it, is there's a book called The High Cost of Good Intentions, which has very little to do with dynamic signal. It's about the history in the United States of entitlement and entitlement programs and where they started, right? When the U.S. started, there was nothing. And then there were uh, healthcare benefits purely for people that fought in the Revolutionary War and were injured in the Revolutionary War. And so I've just found it very interesting to look at those deep dives of economics and history. Uh, I always tell people by far my favorite book ever is Ambushed, A War Reporter's Life on the Line. It is not a business book, but it's a fantastic book. It's a fantastic story about a guy that was the AP bureau chief in West Africa. And uh, this is not a spoiler alert. The first 200 pages are about that. And then at some point covering a revolution, he was shot in the head. And the last 100 pages are about his recovery from that. I think he's a professor at Berkeley, but I've always enjoyed that book. But there's tons of great books. As you know, these days, probably the most common part of VC Twitter is, here's a book I'm reading, VC Twitter. I've tried to avoid that. Not for recommendations. I've tried to avoid it on my own. You mean here's a book where I read the synopsis and I'm tweeting about it? (laughs) No, I'm I'm sure there are some people that read quite a bit. I'm not. It has just become a new thing of like, similar to... Did you really see Black Panther if you didn't tweet about seeing Black Panther? And did you really read a book if you didn't tweet about it? Those are just part of our society. Russ, great conversation. Thanks so much for coming in to Founder Real Talk. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, you can find all our episodes on founderrealtalk.ggvc.com or at Apple Podcasts, Overcast, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please rate us and share as well to help others find this podcast. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. G 
GGV Capital is a multi-stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley, Shanghai, and Beijing. We've been partnering with leading technology entrepreneurs since 2000, from seed to pre-IPO. We invest in globally-minded entrepreneurs in consumer internet, e-commerce, frontier tech, and enterprise, and have invested in over 300 companies since inception, including the likes of Airbnb, Alibaba, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Slack, Square, Wish, and many others. We're very proud of the 30 companies who've achieved multi-billion dollar valuations to date, and we expect several more in the future. Find out more at ggvc.com. If you have any feedback or ideas for future guests, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Thanks for listening.